Take these inspired and preserved Bibles you hold and turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans chapter 5. Thank you, blessed God, for revealing such wonderful things to us and convict us in this hour that we will go forth to live worthy of the name by which we are called and the sacrifice that was made for us. My dear brethren, the last four verses of Romans chapter 5 are our goal for this assembly. They describe a doctrine of salvation hated and despised by the world, but yet loved by us. It describes a legal transaction that took place, both one of condemnation and one of justification that they reject. This passage of Scripture undoes and destroys all the doctrinal heresies that the world has created and all the denominational distinctions that they've made away from the apostolic religion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture is indeed powerful. I hope that you will delight in it, and I hope that I can make it plain to you. Remember Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, are dealing with the subject of imputation, which is to charge one's action to the accounts of others, or representation, which is one representing a large group. This is the single doctrine, though we use two names to describe it, found here. In some church confessions of faith that have a little bit of truth in them, they would call it original sin, because this is Adam's sin applied to the entire race. If you look at Romans 5, and it is my purpose and my calling to try to make these verses plain to you, the first verse, verse 12, declared the doctrine with an intermediate conclusion by the word wherefore. An atonement and the giving of Jesus Christ to make that atonement has been described in the context, especially verse 11. 12 opens up with wherefore. How did that atonement take place and why was it needed? Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so, in that manner of one man sinning, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Not that all have sinned themselves, but for that all have sinned in that one man, which is the topic of verse 12 and it's the topic of the next nine verses. That the doctrine was declared there. Then we have a parenthesis. Inside these parentheses, we have, first of all, in verses 13 and 14, an illustration and confirmation and evidence and proof provided of the doctrine of verse 12. Because the Jews would ask, what about the law? I thought that the law brought sin and death. Because the Bible teaches well after Moses... The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so Paul teaches, before Moses gave his law, or even received it on Mount Sinai, death ruled in the world. Death can only rule where there's sin, and sin can only exist where there's a law. So there was a law given before Moses gave the law. And that law and the violation of it applied even to those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who had no express commandment that they didn't keep. Severe language. 
in verses 13 and 14. But it's illustrating and proving the doctrine of 12. Then, in 15 through 17, the apostle brings up three dissimilarities between Adam and Christ. The last clause of verse 14 introduces Adam and Jesus as comparable in that Adam is a figure of Jesus Christ according to the Spirit's words in verse 14. Verses 15 through 17, which we dealt with at length last Lord's Day, which I thank God for, and I hope that you're thankful for them, pull out first a qualitative difference in 15, a quantitative difference in 16, an authoritative difference in 17, showing that Adam and Christ, yes, are similar, but Jesus Christ is far superior in quality, in quantity, and in authority. God has been merciful to us on countless terms before, but in understanding this passage. Verse 18 is outside the parentheses. It's a therefore. It is drawing a conclusion and will specifically state the understanding that we ought to have from verse 12 and a little bit from the verses in between, but mostly from 12. The doctrine was stated in 12. It is now stated again in 18. And then it is stated again in verse 19 in different words. It was also stated in 15, 16, and 17, though it had the word not in it. All of that explanation is to tell you the apostle repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated the doctrine of imputation and representation so that we would get the point that it's important. It's powerful. It's weighty. And it undoes man-made theories of assisting, accepting, cooperating, or deciding for God. Those things will get you nowhere because they are outside the pale of the doctrine of imputation and the doctrine of representation, which is one doctrine. We come to the 18th verse. Therefore, when we see a therefore, we know a conclusion is being drawn. The doctrine was stated in 12. Some explanations were given of it in 13 and 14 that Adam and Jesus had some things in common because they were the heads of their respective peoples. And so the apostle says, therefore... And I have explained the context enough that I hope you can appreciate that word. He is going to draw a conclusion from what's been said on this doctrine. And let me read this 18th verse to you. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one... The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Here we have again the as so. But it's better than as so because we've got another adverb stuck into this 18th verse. It's not just merely as so. It's as even so. And when you have even in there, it's another adverb telling you in the exact manner specified and described. As one man, Adam, by one sin, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, brought condemnation and judgment upon all men in him, 
Even so, by the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ, the righteous, brought justification of life unto all men in Him. If you don't make it all men in Him in the last part of that verse, then you are a universalist, and this is not the place you want to be worshiping. If you try to make the all men of the second half of verse 18 the same group of people that's the all men of the first half of verse 18, then you are a universalist. There is no potentiality here. There is no possibility. This is judgment that came upon men, and you understand that they don't have to accept Adam as their personal sin representative. A person does not need to invite Adam into their heart in order to be guilty of Adam's sin. It is an arrangement that God made before the world began, and He communicated it to Adam, and Adam sinned, and we all sinned in Him, and brought God's judgment and condemnation upon ourselves. This is the truth of God's Word. This is the doctrine of imputation, representation, and original sin. It is a passive relationship that we all have to Adam. We are born passively. You didn't choose in the matter. God made a choice that you were going to have existence. And your existence was not going to be of the angelic realm. It was not going to be of the animal realm. It was going to be of the human realm. And you would be related to Adam before you were even born. It was already made up for you. Chosen by God. And so it is with Jesus Christ. Don't get confused. I'll say maybe more about that before we finish. The easiest way to explain the all in verse 18. And it's a it's common to hear this question raised, but listen, if all in the second half of verse 18 is the same all as in the first half, then everyone goes to heaven because everyone's justified because the free gift of justification came upon all men. It wasn't offered to anyone. It came upon them as surely as Adam's work came upon them. It wasn't offered, and neither is Jesus Christ's work offered. It came upon them. So you're going to end up being a universalist. Here's how we understand it. 1 Corinthians 15.22. And do you know why we do this? It's not to fill up sermon time. The last thing I need right now are things to fill up sermon time. 1 Corinthians 15.22. As in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, do you want to make those two alls the same group of people? You're going to be a universalist. You have to be. I'll force you to be. As in Adam, all die. All that are in Adam, die. Because they're related to Adam. All that are in Christ, live. Because they're related to Christ. How do we get into Adam? By God's choice to give you existence in Adam. And by your first birth to human parents. But you don't even need that first birth because if you're conceived in Him, you're connected to His sin. How do we get into Christ? By God's choice before the world began to put us in Jesus Christ. And we're born again passively, like you were born the first time passively, by the power of the Holy Spirit that gives you a vital existence and relationship to Jesus Christ. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The all is the all in Adam. The all is the all in Christ. The all is the same all right here. You say, but it says all men. Of course it does. It's not talking about animals or angels. Please, don't be too hard on the Holy Spirit. 
It's very plain. And listen, here's the question. This is how you need to learn to study the Bible. And I thank God for the men that came before me and pounded this into my head and blessed me to know this that I'm about to lay on you. When you read a verse like that and you say, but it, uh, it, but it seems, it seems like it's the same group of people in the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse. Why did God choose the words all men in the second half of the verse when He knew that Arminians would believe that it was Jesus offering salvation to all men? Why did He do that? There is a very simple reason, a very powerful reason, and a reason that will help you study the Bible more effectively. This is the reason. And I form it to you in a question. Is God the author of confusion? Absolutely. Amen. Always from the beginning to the end. If you do not want to submit to truth, He will confuse and confound you. He will deceive you. Those are His words. Have you ever read that God sends them strong delusion so that they would believe a lie? Is that your God or not? That is my God. And He has dealt that way with men throughout the history of the Bible. You can read it in both Testaments. So when I read a verse like verse 18, I don't have a single question about it. I know absolutely what it's declaring. But when I think to myself, why did God write it in such a way that little sheep stumble, fall, and skin their little white woolly knees on a verse like this, I know that God did it to magnify Himself over those who will not submit to God's Word. They want a begging Jesus that didn't truly save anyone. He will not allow them the privilege without disgracing them in their false doctrine. This is, the Bible's full of this. Right. Why did Jesus speak in parables? So that the people wouldn't understand what he was talking about. Right. Why did God say he would deceive prophets in Ezekiel 14 when men came to those prophets with idols in their hearts? Because you don't go to the God of heaven with an idol in your heart. And if you go to the God of heaven with the idol of Arminianism in your heart, you are going to come out of the Bible an Arminian with a rope around your neck, and I'm tossing the the other end of the rope over a strong limb with a King James Bible. That's why it's written that way. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know to separate the all men in the first half of the verse from the all men in the second half of the verse? It should be obvious to you. That not all men receive justification. Justification of life doesn't come up on all men. First of all, it's just that simple. You know that it's not true. So you know the, the, the group in the second half of the verse is smaller than the group in the first half of the verse. But then there's rules of Bible study, and that's why on Wednesday nights, once a month, we have Bible hermeneutics classes, because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit taught us things in words. Not the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And how do we figure out those words? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, which is why we go to 1 Corinthians 15:22. As in Adam, all die. As in Christ, all are made alive. Enough. That is not my point. All I want to do is answer those who are asking about that. Listen, my point right now is as, even so. It is so powerful. Those are adverb constructions. That is an adverb comparison stating that what is described and specified in the manner of the way things took place in the first clause, it is exactly the way they took place in the second clause. The very way that we're made sinners and come under God's condemnation is the exact way that we become righteous and have justification of life put upon us. By the imputation of the work of another. Adam's work was put to your account. 
at your conception. In the mind of God, it was done well done before you were even conceived. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was put to your account before the world began. Praise God! This is a wonderful doctrine. This is what we believe in this church. This is why we are not part of the other 400 Baptist churches in Greenville County, because they don't believe this. We believe it. We wish there were 400 more just like us. We don't mean anything by that. We're nothing. We are the nothings of this world. We are base, foolish, and poor. And God has seen fit to make us rich with His Word. And we just look at verse 18 and we believe it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So we look at the big word, therefore, and we look at the little words like as and so. Because they're all important to communicate doctrinal truth to us. The rest of the world, the Christian world today, wants a praise band right now. They want a light show and they want a bunch of noise that will make their bodies twitch and jerk. They do not want to hear sound doctrine. Second Timothy chapter 4 tells us the time would come when men would no longer endure sound doctrine. I know that it takes endurance to sit in here. I wish that I could entertain you while yet preaching boldly and plainly God's Word, but I'm not an entertaining person. You need a new pastor. It's just not the way God made me. All I know how to do is explain these verses and these words to you. But the Bible says, Timothy, the time is coming when they'll no longer endure sound doctrine. They'll want to be entertained. They're going to heap to themselves teachers. There's always teachers that'll itch your scratching lust. They'll heap to themselves those kind of teachers, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth, and they'll turn their ears to fables. They will want to hear fables instead of the Word of God. This is the Word of God. This ought to change your life in the way of understanding how you're saved. And this ought to change your life in how much you owe the God that made such a wonderful choice for you before the world began. To think that God didn't make any choice for me. That He didn't also make for every single soul that is suffering the torments of His eternal wrath in hell is not high motivation. Knowing that he singled me out by his sovereign grace because it seemed good in his sight and saved me should motivate me and should motivate you. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That judgment was a threefold death of immediate spiritual death between Adam and God. It was a physical death that took place 930 years in his case. And it is the second death that occurs to all men outside of Jesus Christ. A threefold death was the judgment and men were condemned before God by all three counts because of one man's single sin. Eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's how you became a sinner. Even so, I wish I knew how to press into your minds the power of the English language when you have an even so construction following an as. You ought to look it up in an OED and see it as dot dot dot, meaning the material that goes in between even so. You ought to see it. That's how they show it. As dot 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 even so. When you've got this combination and it is showing a comparison between two different things, It is telling you that they happen in exactly the same way. Precisely the same way. As stated. Amen. We believe our English Bibles. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Do you know exactly 
who that's talking about. All men in Adam. Who is the one? It's Adam. What is his offense? Eating the forbidden fruit. Did he sin at other times in his life? Absolutely, absolutely and certainly. But this is the one that God charged him with that would come upon all men. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life of righteousness. My brethren, the best father, the best father you ever had as far as innate ability is Adam. Many of you, some of you, had pitiful fathers. Some of you have had good fathers. But the best father you had in the way of intelligence, made good and very good, was Adam. Right. Now Adam had a choice. He was told that what he does is going to apply to you. You. Don't ever put your trust in man, except one man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. You had a perfect father in the beginning. And he made a choice. He liked Eve's smiling navel. Even if it would cost you a threefold death of spiritual death from God, physical death that would clutch and claw at you all the days of your life, and a second death that would put you in the lake of fire. Now there's for putting your trust in man. Right. Are you convinced yet? I want you to think on that. Your first father did that to you. He chose Eve's navel over you. That selfish man, didn't he have any interest in his family? Have there been men like that since that didn't care about their families like they should have? How big was his family? I estimate 90 billion. You say, how'd you come up with that number? I don't know. It's just to make you think. There's 6.8 billion on earth right now. How many have lived since creation? The Lord thinned it down in the flood. Population growth slowed somewhat. The Almanac reports to me in the year 1556 after creation. Never mind. Even so, I want you to think about your first father. Because, brethren, I get to preach to you today about the Good Shepherd. And I want to tell you about a man that loves you like no father can ever love you, right. no pastor can ever love you, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one we're talking about right now in the second half of verse 18. Even so, in the exact same way that Adam's offense was charged to the entire human race so that God's judgment came upon all those men related to Adam, and they were condemned, even so, in the very same way, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ brought the free gift of justification of life unto all the men that are in Him for whom He died and for whom He gave eternal life. We're going to see that in John chapter 10. And because I can't wait, let me say it to you now. And I give unto them eternal life. Right. Who does He give eternal life to? His sheep. Right. He doesn't offer eternal life to goats that they might become sheep. He doesn't offer eternal life to sheep that they might stay sheep. He gives eternal life to His sheep. That's in John 10.28. And the next verse says, My Father which gave them Me. How did Jesus Christ get His sheep? I know I'm getting ahead of myself. And I'm very ashamed of myself at this moment inside. But nevertheless, He gives to them eternal life and God gave them to Him. It's in John chapter 10. And it's right here. Don't you worry about who it is. It's the, one that, the ones that got the free gift. 
Jesus, in his intercessory prayer of John 17, said, As thou, Father, hast given me power, that's authority, over all flesh, that's goats and sheep, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Praise the Lord. The exact number that God gave Jesus Christ to die for, Jesus Christ died for them and gave them eternal life. He didn't offer it. If he offered it, do you know how many people would be in heaven? None. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. They're foolish in his sight. That's That's a corrupt version. I'll grant it right now. But it's 1 Corinthians 2.14 with the right reference. This is what we have in this 18th verse. I love this statement. I love this doctrine. I thank God for showing it to me. It is by His mercy and His grace. Or I would have been running around this world like the Pharisees of Matthew chapter 23, encompassing land and sea to make one more proselyte to the Jewish religion. And you know what Jesus said about their missionary efforts? Everyone they get a hold of, is twofold the child of hell than they were before. Matthew 23. Right. We'll get to that in the second assembly, maybe. Because it describes the thieves and the robbers that came before the Lord Jesus Christ and to who were standing in the background as he preached John 10. He had a way with words and a way with people. How to win friends and influence people was not written by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they crucified him on the cross. Verse 18, I hope you can see it and understand it clearly. This is what we believe about justification. How is a man justified? Jesus Christ the righteous, living a perfectly righteous life before God, and God charging, accounting, counting, or reckoning, or imputing that righteous life and that obedience to my account. That's how I believe we're justified. Well, 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 well what do you have to do in order to get it? I don't have to do anything to get it. Right. Jesus Christ did everything to give it. I don't have to get it. Jesus Christ gave it. God planned it. Jesus Christ gave it. I've got it. And I worship Him. And I live for Him. And I love Him. And I believe on Him. And all those things flow from the giving. It's not my getting. It's His giving. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. That is what we believe about justification. That is why we like Samuel Richardson's article that he wrote in 1647 that is on our website, Justification by Christ Alone. Sola fide. What do you mean? What do you mean by sola fide? Do you mean the devils believe and tremble? Sola fide. Faith only. Faith only? Faith only is absolutely and at all times utterly worthless and an abomination in the sight of God. Sola fide, I don't care who said it. I don't care who stands behind it. I don't care about the reformation that spawned it. The reformation that spawned it. Sola fide, only believe. Faith only. That's what the devils do. That's what a man who's dead does. That's what those who tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ did and believed in John chapter 8, verses 30 through 44. You can read about the children of the devil right there. They believed on him. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, 
I thought that you could be saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, 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 shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You want to put yourself in the second half of Romans 5.18? Then follow the great shepherd. Hear his voice and follow him out of this place today like Dionysius the Areopagite did. And Damaris in Acts chapter 17, the last verse. You follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the evidence that you're part of his sheep. Faith without works is dead. It has nothing. It's worthless. It's a devilish faith. Oh, thank you, Lord. That my salvation isn't dependent upon my faith. It isn't dependent upon my works. It's not dependent on my parents getting me sprinkled as a child. It's not dependent on my baptism. It's not dependent upon my membership in a church. Popes have said there is no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came and obeyed for me perfectly. What I did not do toward my parents, you did. What I did not do toward God, you did. And everything you did, God, your Father, my Father, applied it to my account. And everything I did, God, your Father, and my Father, applied it to your account. And it pleased the Father to bruise you instead of bruising me. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. This is salvation. This is the doctrine. This separates us. This cuts out all dependence upon human plans of redemption. All human cooperation. There is none. You don't cooperate anymore in the first half, or in the second half, or in the first half, as in the second half, or as in the first half. It's by the choice of God. I wonder why he needed to repeat it so many times. And then you grow up and you read a few systematic theologies and you know he needed to repeat it. People don't want to believe it. It takes all the glory out of man and puts it in the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes all the power out of man and puts it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know where it puts us? On our faces before him, smiting our breasts and saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. Now the man that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, did he fall down unjustified and rise up justified? I'm talking about it in the throne room of heaven. No, he fell down because he was justified. But I'll tell you, he rose up justified right here because God the Holy Spirit gives him the comforting word, You are my son. Galatians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. We are the sons of God. How does it take place? Right there, Romans 5.18. In case you didn't get it, let's go to verse 19. For, that means in case you didn't get it. For, as, are we going to get another one of these? Are we going to get another one? We had one in 12. We had one in 18. Do we need another one? You need another one. God the Holy Spirit. I thank God for His Word. I thank God for His Word exactly as it's written. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Do you have any problem with understanding the doctrine there? For as, as, an adverb meaning in this precise way, by one man, many were made sinners. 
That's representation. That's imputation. One man's work applied to the many. One versus many. One versus a crowd. One versus the constituents of Adam. Four, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It doesn't matter whether you disobeyed or not. You certainly have. The last two verses in the chapter are going to remind you of that fact. It doesn't matter whether you disobeyed or not because it's Adam's disobedience that condemns you and makes you a sinner. This is the doctrine. And it's being repeated over and over again. And we've hardly ever heard it repeated in most churches, have we? We've hardly ever heard it mentioned the first time in the way that it should have been. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. One man, Adam, disobedience in the Garden of Eden, the many are the all that are in him. Why does it use many now and all before? It's the one versus the all in him. It's the one versus the many. It's the one versus his constituents. He doesn't want you to get hung up on the word all, so he uses the word many. Because the meaning isn't in the all or in the many. It's in the constituents of each representative. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Sin enough to bring about spiritual death. Sin enough to bring about physical death. Sin enough to bring about the second death in the lake of fire. So, another adverb, that as so construction, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It is an offering righteousness to anyone. It is obedience of Jesus Christ applied to our accounts. This is the doctrine of the Bible. Jesus is not going to lose a single one God gave to him. There is no potentiality of eternal life. There is absolute certainty of eternal life because God promised eternal life to the elect before the world began. Titus chapter 1, the first three verses. Amen. This is the the doctrine here. So, in the very same way as we were made sinners, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That is how we get saved. You know, people ask, How do babies get saved? No one can answer it. Except here. How do babies get saved? But it's the wrong question. Here's the better question. Why do babies die? As soon as you can answer why do babies die, then you'll be able to answer the question, how are babies saved? Let me make it a little tougher for you. For your weak consciences, if you have a weak conscience, the question could be phrased, why does God kill babies? Say, God doesn't kill babies. That's the farthest thing from His mind. Is that what was blinking in neon and Noah's Ark? God doesn't kill babies. Secondhand cigarette smoke kills babies. Is that what was on the Ark? You say you're making fun of religion. Do you think that I'm like a second cousin maybe to Elijah? Thank you. Thank you. Why do babies die? Why did God kill babies in the flood? And why did God kill babies in Sodom and Gomorrah? Why did God kill the babies that were in their cribs in the land of Egypt? Why do babies die? By the disobedience of one? By the offense of one, well, now you know how babies are saved. How many babies are saved? That's in the mind and purpose of Almighty God 
that will make a far better choice than you could or would. How are they saved? Because Jesus Christ went to the cross for them. He obeyed His entire life for them. He obeyed when He went to the cross. And He took up His life again. And He ever lives to make intercession for every single one of them. It's by the obedience of one that many shall be made righteous. Can a baby be made a sinner? By Adam? By representation? By imputation? Certainly. Can a baby be made righteous? By imputation and representation of the second Adam? Yes. We are the only ones that have a doctrine that can save babies. Listen. Just a second. I hear Jacobus Arminius. He's behind the curtain. He says you forgot about the age of accountability. Oh, I did. I forgot about the age of accountability. They're all going to heaven until they're 12. I wonder why the Bible doesn't say that. If they're all going to heaven because they haven't reached the age of accountability, that means they're not sinners, are they? Then why do 11-year-olds die? Please help me. Why do eight-year-olds die? Why do two-year-olds die? There's a lot of little stones at old cemeteries. Why are there so many little stones at cemeteries if there's an age of accountability? Because the important word in that last sentence of mine was the word if. Because there isn't an age of accountability. Because here's the the problem. Adam was at least 13. He was accountable. And he took us all down with him. And he was the best father you've had. I speak in a certain way because I want you to think about Adam compared to Jesus Christ. How about the Lord Jesus Christ? I speak this with all reverence for the holiest man that ever lived. Were there smiling navels in his 33 years? Were they close to him? Did they fawn over him? Did they know that he was the most gracious man that ever lived? Did they kiss his feet? Did they wipe his feet with the hairs of their head and anoint them with oil? But I want to tell you something about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time that the desires, the temptations that face you and me, that we succumb to, those temptations came to him. He remembered first God his Father, and he remembered second Jonathan Crosby, that he was going to live a perfect and righteous life and undo all the unrighteousness of my life to clothe me in his perfect righteousness in every single way, including that way, that I could stand before God in perfect righteousness. And that is the doctrine of justification by one, by Jesus Christ alone. Moreover, verse 20, moreover, I'm not done yet with 19. I have a clock and I'm going to meet my goals this Lord's Day by God's grace. But just before we leave 19, I don't want anyone to to lose or forget the power of the verse and the power of the doctrine of imputation and representation. You are guilty for Adam's sin, whether you know about Adam, believe Adam, accept Adam, receive Adam, or sin yourself. Whether you confess Adam, doesn't matter. It's curtains. It's judgment unto condemnation upon you 
because of one man's offense, Adam in the Garden of Eden. Let me say it again. I know when I repeat myself most of the time, that will end. You need not accept Adam as your personal sin representative to be judged by his sin. If you never hear of him or you deny his existence when you hear of him, you will die by his sin. You are justified by Jesus' obedience the very same way. Imputation and representation. You say, but what about the words of faith in the Bible? What about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Of course. That's the first initial, rather worthless, act by which we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ for the assurance of our own souls. That's why the rest of the Bible, if you could ever get past Romans chapter 10, then you would find that in the rest of the Bible it tells you to add a few things to your faith because faith without works is dead being alone. We want to add to our faith virtue and so on all the way up to brotherly kindness. And it's when we do these things that ye shall never fall. It's when we do these things that we make our calling and election sure. Faith does not make anything sure. It's the first act. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now how many Arminians add in the baptism? Just the consistent ones. It's the inconsistent ones that say, well, he didn't really mean that. He just meant belief. No, he meant both. Because all he's talking about is evidence. And if your evidence of eternal life is only faith, it isn't much evidence. The devils have it. He that believeth and is baptized. And then he that keepeth my commandments. Lord, Lord. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's someone calling upon the name of the Lord. They're practicing Romans 10.13. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, that's who enters into the kingdom of heaven. It's a sermon entitled, Salvation by Works, that I'm twitching to want to preach again. Because Salvation by Works is a sermon in which we go through the New Testament and pull out all the sound bites, and they're not really sound bites, they're declarations of doctrine that tell us it is by good works that we know we have eternal life. How do we know that we have passed from death into life? According to 1 John. Love the brethren. Do the devils love the brethren? No. Ah, we've elevated ourselves a little bit from Arminian faith that is no better than a devil's faith. All Paul told the Philippian jailer was what to get started. What do you think they talked about when he got into the Philippian jailer's home and saw the paraphernalia in that house for worshiping the gods of the Romans? He was told a whole list of things he ought to be doing that would show him to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith or obedience on your part is only evidence Jesus Christ obeyed for you. It has no, please listen, it has no more cause-effect relationship to putting you into Christ than your sins have a cause-effect relationship of putting you into Adam. Your sins are only the evidence of being in Adam, as the next two verses are going to tell you. Your righteousness, your faith, your good works, are only the evidence of being in Christ. We want the whole Bible to fit together, and this is exactly how the whole Bible fits together, right here. This is the only doctrine of salvation that can save infants, idiots, and others like them consistently. By the grace of God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord.
If you add your obedient faith or works to the equation, you make salvation by the obedience of two. But it says the obedience of one. If you add your faith or your works, you've got is faith and obe- is faith obeying God, or are you going to want or do you want to tell me that faith is disobeying God? Is faith obeying God? Then when you exercise faith, you're obeying God and you're adding your obedience to Adam's obedience to Jesus Christ's obedience in order to be made righteous. But it says by the obedience of one. If you add the witnessing of a soul winner, you make salvation by the obedience of three. The soul winner obeyed. You obeyed the soul winner, and Jesus obeyed. So there's three of you making you righteous. If you add an organist pleading with you, playing 15 verses of amazing grace when the evangelist promised one, you make salvation by the obedience of four. If you add a prayer warrior that's seeking for souls to be saved, you make salvation by the obedience of five. If you add a giver paying a preacher to beg, you make salvation by the obedience of six, and you've added gold and silver to your redemption. If you add a priest sprinkling a baby, you make salvation by the obedience of seven. Where do we stop? We stop at one, because the Bible says one. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The labors that we engage in are not to put any names in the book of life or to make anyone righteous before God. The labors that we engage in, the same as Paul engaged in, he endured all things for the elect's sakes. That means their names were already written in heaven because God had chosen them and put their names there. His labors and our labors are simply to convert them from error to the truth. That's what he meant in Romans chapter 10 when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What salvation is he talking about? Read the verse instead of painting a banner like a sixth grade cheerleader in a, in a hallway at school. Read the passage. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. The salvation was from ignorance so that they would know that they had one man representing them that had saved them and they didn't need to keep offering all the animal sacrifices of Moses' system. The only Israel he's talking about in Romans chapter 10 is elect Israel because he spent the whole chapter of chapter 9 telling you that there were two Israels, the elect and the non-elect Israel. He said in verse 6 of that ninth chapter, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now which Israel do you think he's praying for in Romans 10? Those that are Israel or those that are not Israel when he said Israel? Help me. I'm not, I'm not sharp when it comes to things like this. When I say things like that, I get confused. When he said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Was he praying for Israel that wasn't Israel or Israel that was Israel? Verse 20. Moreover, moreover, not only, moreover means not only I've got more. Not only is this doctrine clearly stated in 12 through 19, not only is it clearly illustrated, not only is it clearly proven, Not only is it developed for us to rejoice in some good things in 15 through 17, the law entered. Oh, moreover, the law entered. God did not stop with Adam's covenant that brought sin and death upon every single one of us. 2,500 years after creation, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and came down with a few commandments. Somewhere in the low 700s. He said, I thought it was 10. Oh, 
That was just ten chapters to the handbook of how to be a good Jew. Because each one of those had a whole string of commandments associated with them. You say, is it really the low 700? Yes, it is. Moreover, the law entered in God's relationship to men for 2,500 years from Adam to Moses. Verse 14 talks about it. Sin and death reigned even over those that didn't sin exactly like Adam by breaking an express commandment of God with the penalty of death attached. Infants primarily. They've made up half the population of the world since the creation. It's a big category. Moreover, the law entered. That law is the law of Moses. That law is what the Jews that were sitting in this audience at Rome would have been wondering about. If it's all said and done by Adam, what in the world did Moses' law come for? Listen, our fathers for 1,500 years have been following the law of Moses. We had the, we had the tabernacle. Then we had Solomon's temple. Now we've got Zerubbabel's and Herod's temple. We have the priesthood. What is all that stuff for if everything was settled by the first Adam and the second Adam? Okay. Decent question. Moreover, the law entered that there might be a second way of being justified. Is that what it says? What does it say? That the offense might abound. The offense might abound. What offense might abound? It, how, does, does the apostle know in this context that when he uses offense or sin or trespass, he's talking about Adam's? And when he uses offenses, he's talking about ours? Did we have a quantitative verse in verse 16? Okay, I hope you're with me. What offense is under consideration in Romans 5.20? The offense of Adam. What did the law come in for? To show that the relationship with Adam and God's condemnation of us by the sin of Adam was well justified because we confirm that we're just like him every day of our lives. Moreover, the law entered. The law of Moses came down from Sinai that the offense might abound, that Adam's offense and its consequences to us by death and by a new nature. This is where we slightly leave imputation and representation to bring in a little bit of the new nature. Adam's sin did three things. Don't forget, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In fact, when God threatened Adam, the one death of the three that he emphasized was the death of his nature, the spiritual death. And that death is in all of us. And this, if there's no reason why we should change this word offense in the singular to being a collective noun for all of our sins, since we've had a singular offense used throughout this passage describing Adam's. And that is his, that, that is the context. We let the context be our leader and our guide. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that Adam's sin might abound and its effect upon us. Its legal consequences were already upon us. We don't even need another commandment. Adam's sin is enough to condemn us. But when God gave us a whole set of commandments and all His promised blessings, did God do a decent job in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and other places where He promised numerous blessings upon Israel if they would keep His commandments? Was it was there a decent motive to keep His commandments? I mean, did he tell them that they would ride upon the high places of the earth? That they would drink, that they would take oil from the rock? 
that they would be in a land flowing with milk and honey, that he would dig their wells for them, build their cities for them, build the walls, and, and furnish the houses from expensive furniture stores, plant their vineyards. Did he say all that? So they were highly motivated to keep his commandments, but they didn't. Because God gave that law to Moses not to provide a secondary means of justification, but that the offense might abound. That Adam's sin would come into full view by its cor- the corruption that was translated to all of us by the first of the threefold death, the, sin- the death of our nature. So that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. And what does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? It means that we follow the course of this world and we obey the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It makes sin abound. What does Romans chapter 7 say about the law of God? It was designed to make sin exceeding sinful. What does Romans chapter 3 say the law was made for? That every mouth might be stopped and all the world might become guilty before God. If you need help, If the doctrine of representation isn't enough to you, if you don't think it's fair, then the law entered to show that you are as bad or worse than Adam was. In addition to Adam's legal consequences, you have your own practical consequences to deal with, and that's your sins against God's law. That's why he gave it. That's what Moses came down from Mount Sinai for. The whole, do you know what this tells us? The entire 6,000 year history of the world is with one end in view. The glorifying of the Lord Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior. The law was never given to save anyone. Paul would say in the book of Galatians, if a law had been given that could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But there was no law that could have been given to give life. Life had to come as a free gift from the Lord Jesus Christ and by the grace of God. The law entered that the offense might abound. Do you know how many sacrifices they had to offer in Israel? How do we even count the number? If there's in the low 700s of commandments, how many were you guilty of in a week's time? More than your flocks and herds if you killed one for every crime. You say, well, he didn't have the crimes of the heart back then. Oh, really? You think no. You need to read your Bible. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that Adam's sin and the consequences of that sin might be fully seen is why God gave the law. Hasn't he already taught you that in Romans chapter 3? To shut every mouth, that all the world may become guilty, so that they would know that salvation is entirely by the free grace of God in justification. Chapter 3, verse 24, said that. But where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound. Though we have Adam, and though we have the law showing how sinful we are in addition to Adam, grace did more abound. What does abound mean? It means to overwhelm, fill up, and overflow. There was so much sin from Adam, so much sin from us, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God gave the law to show that sin was everywhere, that it infected every part of us, and that we would break any commandment that he gave us. And yet Jesus Christ came and kept every single one of those commandments, and that righteousness was applied to us. That, as sin hath reigned unto death, the soul that sinneth it shall die, was a term of Moses' law. And they all sinned, and they all knew that they deserved death, and they all died. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so, do we have another one? Do we have another as even so? Is that redundant? 
Should we pull out the red pen and write redundant on this paper? That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so, did sin and death have a decent amount of authority and power between Adam and Moses, after Moses. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so, might grace reign. Is grace in authority and power now? Yes. Through righteousness, by Jesus Christ, taught in verses 18 and 19, unto eternal life, by Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam condemned our race. The law just was an additional proof of it to show how sinful we all are. But where sin abounded by Adam and by Moses' law, grace did much more abound. And that sin and death reigned over the human race for 4,000 years. But Jesus Christ has abolished death. He's put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And we shall reign in life, verse 17, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In these two verses, the qualitative, quantitative, and authoritative value of Jesus Christ over Adam and over the law of Moses is stated again, though less clearly than in verses 15 through 17. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Why was the law given? So that all our offenses would be exposed as well through his one offense. Did sin and death reign authoritatively? Yes. But grace reigns authoritatively now. You had a father. He chose Eve over you. You have another father. His name is called the Everlasting Father. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single temptation that he ever faced, and he was tempted in all points like as we are, he did not sin, and he chose to live for you to save his sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep. He always had his father in view because his father had given him the sheep to save. He always had the sheep in view because he said, I know my sheep, and I lay down my life for the sheep. May God bless the pitiful preaching of his word.